time to party in Autistic Town. Cue the music. Episode 2. You don't sound autistic. Well, what does an autistic person Wait. sound like? You're autistic? Yeah, I'm telling you that. You don't even look autistic. But, but we're talking about... Yeah, but I don't buy it. But I, I was diagnosed with autism and ADHD and anxiety and depression. You don't sound autistic. Welcome back to another episode of You Don't Sound Autistic. I'm Blake. I'm Rochelle. And I'm autistic. And I'm not. When you have autistic or neurodiverse symptoms that are a little more on the mild side, one of the places where it does start to show up the most, in my experience, is in sensory management. So sensory input, whether it's whether you're sensory seeking or whether you're sensory avoidant. So tell me if you agree with this statement. If I walk up behind you and I don't make enough noise and then I say something to you, you're totally fine with it. That'd be a no. That'd be a no. <laughs> Why? No. Tell me what happens in that moment for you. Um, you scare the shit out of me, probably. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, I really d- I don't like... Um, people sneaking up on me. I need uh, visual cues. Those help me a lot. The last time we were in a public place and there was a lot of noise happening around us and a crowd of people, how did you respond? Like what was going on inside? Well, we just went to medieval times. We did. And we won too. We did. Red and yellow night. Finally. Woo. I don't know how many times we've been to medieval times. We have never won. Uh, But today we did. That's right. It was cool. That's a good example because there's lots of people yelling, but I think I'm expecting there to be a lot of noise. Right. And so I'm able to kind of prepare myself. But even though the show starts off like a really loud whip crack and that scared the shit out of me today. But it's different when you're somewhere and if you're in a restaurant that's not particularly loud and then something really loud happens or just like a minute ago we were talking and um, the printer the printer just started making a bunch of noise and I'm like, what was that? That kind of stuff always annoys Rochelle. It's a struggle because in that moment, I'm not paying attention to the printer at all. And I got my mind on other things and I'm trying to use the moment to get organized. And then something sound goes off and you're like, what is that? And I have to stop and try and figure out what the heck it was and how to even, you know, identify it for you. But why don't you just know what it is automatically? (laughs) You know, this is the point I was making earlier. Neurotypical doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean I have full capacity in every single area either. I think that's one of the, the challenges is you know, it's not doesn't mean I'm perfect. I'm far from. So no, I don't know. You know, I have to say, you know, we went out today for Father's Day and I was really impressed by the amount of people who showed up for dads. You don't often see that. We were out for Mother's Day also and there were far more people out celebrating mom. Like the families were a little bit bigger and the showing was bigger. But today I was really proud, you know, and, and driving uh, to and from medieval times, which is where we went to celebrate Father's Day. There were multiple billboards celebrating father so multiple brands were putting out their happy father's day images uh and i was really happy to see that i I haven't seen that before yeah that was it was nice i felt celebrated so happy father's day thank you well it's an important thing actually because statistically the number of people uh with neurodiversity is um largely male Uh, and oftentimes they are fathers One of the easiest ways that we are diagnosing our adult population with autism and neurodiversity in 2021 is through the kids. Yeah. That's right. The kids are all messed up and then 
They're like, well, there must be something wrong with one of you two. <laughs> Let's see who it is. And mom probably goes, it's dad. <laughs> it's dad. It's whoever has the biggest cranium. Oh, well, that's definitely me. Well, in this case. So I took him into the, the ENT, the ear, nose, and throat doctor yeah, uh, to, have, to have a, a hearing screening done for speech therapy. And it's not like he doesn't speak. It's just not English. It's uh, Declanese. It's Declish. <laughs> Declish. I like Declanese. That's pretty good, too. <laughs> I like Declish. Yeah. Um, so we don't know what he's saying. So we were asked to get an updated hearing screening and sure enough, he failed it. And it was really shocking because it was like, oh my gosh, I, I thought we were going to sail through this. And it, it actually uncovered a pretty significant issue. You know, Mother's Day was before the surgery and we went to medieval times and it was a completely different experience than what we just went through today. Yes. Post-surgery. You would think that the fluid behind his ears before the tubes would sound less harsh on Mother's Day since he hadn't had the tubes put in. And yet today, he didn't really seem affected by the noise at all. No. And he's had the tubes for Yeah, I think weeks. he's going on two weeks now. Okay. Almost two. Made a significant difference. Um, yeah. If, if it was only a week out, I don't think we would have been able to go. His ears still would have been hearing. That first week was really challenging. He's, by nature, something that's called sensory seeking. Um, he does have a sensory processing disorder. It's been identified through his occupational therapy. And we've watched it play out week after week after week where he's either craving some loud, obnoxious metal on metal sound and banging and clanging. And we're just like, oh, my gosh, that's harsh. And it's really obvious that he is not just stimulated, but also soothed by the louder sounds uh, because he'll often take whether it's like some cooking utensil of mine or even a fork and he'll just kind of bang it against wooden surfaces and um, he loves to bang it against the metal on the stove. And I don't love the sound, but I always know what mood he's in based on what kind of noises he's making because it's sensory seeking. But on the opposite, you're sensory avoidant. Yes, this is true. I do not like loud noises. For instance, 4th of July, especially in California, when people start celebrating on the 5th of July for the 4th of July, it's really loud and obnoxious and the big fireworks going off there was a point where but we were in our apartment it was so loud that we decided to go outside into the hot tub at our apartment complex and I proceeded to plunge myself underneath the water and hold myself under for as long as I could hold my breath over and over again to avoid the loud noises and all the stimulation at that point you were so agitated by the sound and so unable to make it stop what it was doing uh, was inadvertently throwing you into what's called dysregulation. I did feel dysregulated. Yeah. So I had a banana. <laughs> did it help? I'm regular now. <laughs> I just got that. Yeah. So I do remember watching you go under the water, um, but of course that was only a solution as long as you could hold your breath. Right. So not really a solution. No, not necessarily. That uh, hasn't been as bad as it was that one particular time. But I also uh, have these acoustic ear plugs that are non, they don't have a battery, they're not electronic. And they have a little dial on them so I can tune up or turn up or turn down the like the kind of the volume of life a little bit. And it helps so that if I, I you know, don't have to have like weird orange earplugs in my ears. There's these different things that just look like earbuds. Yeah, they look kind of cool and stylish. Yeah. 
Well, there's two types of sensory issues, um, and they're mainly defined by hypersensitivity or over-responsiveness or hyposensitivity, which is under-responsiveness. Hyper and hypo. Mm -hmm. Over and under. Signs of sensory processing hyper or over-responsiveness can be extreme response to or fear of sudden, high-pitched, loud, or metallic noises. Right. (laughs) Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Uh, may notice or be distracted by background noises that others don't seem to hear. Like the air conditioning just came on. Or the printer earlier. Yeah, the printer was annoying. Yeah. Is this ADHD or is it autism? What? Sensory processing disorder. I think it's autism. I guess I don't know enough about it. I just live it. (laughs) Well, that's fair. It's part of neurodiversity one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, Do you have a fearful uh, surprise of being touched? Um, Sometimes, yeah. Can you avoid hugs and cuddles even with familiar adults? Maybe. Hmm. Okay. Well, not yeah, everything. I, I guess to I don't have a good enough answer for you there. Sorry. No, that's okay. I mean, it, this is part of the the discussion. Is just like going through and figuring out what is what applies to your world. It, it's not. I mean, I feel like if I'm in a situation where you know I'm at like a family reunion or something, and everyone's like hugging. Right. I just go with it because that's what people are doing. Oh, that's interesting to me, actually. So would you sort of sacrifice your own preferences in that case just to fit in socially? Yes. Interesting. What would you prefer to do if you were socially accepted for disdaining, if that's what you preferred? I guess it just depends on the person and and my mood at the time. Because sometimes I don't feel, maybe I just, I guess I'm just, I don't know. Like right now, I I don't feel very touchy-feely. Okay. So, but I mean, I I might, but then that sounds creepy. Okay, family, who wants a hug? <laughs> <laughs> I would I would feel the same way. On a hot and muggy day, I would kind of avoid, you know, getting all up close and personal with someone just because my senses at that point would be overstimulated also. Okay. I mean, but I've seen you at a family function where everyone was all hot and sweaty outside and you didn't seem to have any problems with it. Well, I mean, yeah, you're right. So you tried to blend in just like me. I might. Yeah, you're right. Okay, and well. a boo-boo, stick your head in doo-doo. <laughs> I haven't heard that in a long time. <laughs> Do you uh, ever notice if you are fearful of crowds? Oh, I, I'm not, I don't know if I would say I'm fearful of clowns, <laughs> but um, I don't like them. Crowds. I know crowds. <laughs> A crowd of clowns? Oh, gosh. Oh, even I don't Jesus. want that. No, no, no. No, I don't know. I, I don't like no, I I don't. I'm not fearful of it. I mean, you know when I would be fearful of it is I'm fearful of it with Declan, because I worry about him. Oh, today he was just fearless. He's running into everyone. He was wearing his um his boots that Grandma gave him, and yep. uh, I have learned when you're going into um, an environment like medieval times or any place where there's going to be a lot of people and there's going to be a lot of sensory input. Um, heavier shoes especially if they're a little bit tighter fit um, it's actually comforting because it's heavy so the every single time he's taking a step he's actually organizing his sensory processing system of his um, proprioceptive system and inside of his brain so it helps him organize his feelings right you just reminded me of something i was like oh yeah i should be wearing my i got these those angle weights oh yeah 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 and uh and i and i have a vest too, right. a weight vest that sometimes I just wear just around the house, just like my negligee. 
Um, just wear it around <laughs> the house. That's visual. Just because. Just because I want to feel like a woman. Okay. Uh, just, anyway, so uh, yeah, like I'll, I'll wear the weighted vest and stuff and just like go for a walk and the pressure of it mm-hmm. kind of helps to make me feel more secure. Yeah. And no, that's true. So, you know, he put those boots on today and I thought, well, he's smart because I don't think he really had a, a strong awareness when we said where we were going. I don't think right. he could connect the dots, but I have noticed on those days when he puts his boots on, um, I don't argue with him at all. Even if it seems really weird, I just let him go with it because I know that it's going to help him in the long run manage sensory input. And so when I was watching him run off and oftentimes into the back of people because couldn't stop him fast enough, what I saw the most was how he was stomping his feet. And his occupational therapist has taught me that as he's doing that, that's his way of like grounding and organizing and also getting his feet that input that they crave. So if you notice a lot of times when he's feeling restless at night, right before bedtime, he'll start kicking. Yes, I do notice that. Yeah, there's um, there's something we're always watching for in occupational therapy, which is how he's processing his sensory input through his feet. So it seems to be a highly sensitive area. Okay. So I'm saying yay to the boots. Yeah. Yay. Go boots. This I notice on a regular basis, extremely high pain tolerance. That he has high pain tolerance? Yeah, he does. Yeah. I mean, I think I do to to a degree. My mom used to say that I was, you know, I'd always like hit my head Well, all the time and stuff. And then they just look at me and I'd rub my head and then be like, all right, game on. Um, often harms other children and or pets when playing. Now, luckily, he doesn't do that any- with the children, but he will smack Miho on the butt. Yeah, well, I'll do that myself sometimes. Oh, so he's following your bad example. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just saying. Sometimes the cat needs a little tap in the ass. <laughs> Especially that one. She bites. Maybe fidgety and unable to sit still. I mean, that was this whole experience. Are you talking about him or me? Him. This is all him. Oh, okay. Because I, I get fidgety and sometimes can't sit still yeah but i think that's the adhd a lot of these overlap right okay but it's like my apologies you know today he got through three-fourths of the meal same time you know same thing happened at mother's day he got about three-fourths of the meal through and then he was ready to go up and walk and so we had to kind of step away from the table now the nice thing about medieval times you wouldn't find it necessarily like a movie theater is that the arena has that outer walkway so it was really convenient we could kind of excuse ourselves from the table and he we could just walk the perimeter i didn't realize so much of this um tied right back into sensory processing disorder but looking at this list it dang sure does it dang sure does <laughs> that is southern if i've ever heard anything southern before well thank you dang sure does <laughs> we are in the south and <laughs> no, that but that sounds like a you know the blue collar comedy guys. Uh huh. It sounds like it, I think there's like four of them. It would be like the fifth guy would be like, "Thanks, your does." <laughs> so I think that I would say there's been a dramatic improvement between the sensory input experience during Mother's Day, which is pre-surgery for the eustachian tubes, versus what we experienced today. I mean, he was engaging. He wasn't um, overwhelmed by what he heard. He seemed to be so calm um, after he watched enough of the the fighting and the horses and the sounds. And when and you could watch his brain just kind of go, okay, I know what that noise is. And then he was quick to turn around as the lights kept changing. And he was getting really focused on like, oh, where are those lights coming from? And, and just really identifying the rest of his environment. And he was not able to do that the first time. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, the first time we were there, he was basically attached to you at the hip. He has this very almost sequential way of letting us know that he's overstimulated, even though he can't necessarily say anything. Um, He basically will collapse into the chair or wherever he's sitting and and you can kind of just see his body get small. It's like his knees get closer together and he puts his hands on his lap and um, his spine kind of, you know, comes into a C curve. His chin kind of comes down. You can see his eyes lower. Like it's very, very visual to see him collapse into himself. One of the, the telltale signs is that he also clasps his hands together, which he never does. Like, I mean, he, this is a, a kid who's, you know, flailing all the time. He's got touching everything. I mean, he can he can probably touch 15 things in, in eight seconds, you know, always moving really quickly. But in, in those moments of sensory overload, he will sort of just hold his hands together in his lap, almost folding his arms and just sitting there quietly. So he did that in the first five minutes of you know the nights coming out and like you said the crack of the whip and uh it was really obvious at that point he was on sensory overload and we were looking at each other going oh my gosh is this is he gonna make it through you know is is he ready for a sensory experience like this is he too young we didn't quite know like did we make a mistake by coming here are you ready to be entertained (laughs) that's the hope I thought for sure the queen, the pretty lady, you know, would be enough to kind of calm him down. She's too far away. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't see her. Boobs weren't big enough. That's true. That's true. Covered by too much. So, um, you know, we had to nurse him through that moment. I really just kind of make him feel safe. I pulled him up onto my lap. I held him tight. Kind of that, um, you know, there's, it's actually neurological when you um, give a, hi- a tight squeeze to someone. Are you familiar with the... Process I've, I've given a few people the tight squeeze. <laughs> I mean, you know, straight jackets, the way that they're designed, the way that they fold your arms in front of you and then tie them behind your back, um, it's actually because it creates the same sensation that we call in cranial sacral therapy a still point. So are you familiar with that? I've given a few people the still point as well. <laughs> Been in a straight jacket lately? Yes. No, no. Well, um, it's the anytime you have two paired bones and you apply equal pressure inward, you know, towards the interior of the body, it can create a sense of calmness for the neurological system. So it's that same thing. If you can if you can put your arms around, you know, a sensory sensitive person, if they'll allow you to do that um, and you have a good rapport with touch in that way where you can give your child a hug or if I and I've done it with you at Universal Studios or different places I've I've, when you're feeling overwhelmed I come give you a big hug and hold it for a good 30 seconds or so I'm strategically helping your neurological system to kind of calm down did you know that of course I knew that oh I thought you just I know a lot of things Rochelle I am a man who knows many things (laughs) and I knew that no doubt, no I doubt. I sounded like Trump there for a second. I know you did. I'm a man who knows many things. I know all the things about <laughs> all the stuff. <laughs> Although your impressions are normally spot on. I, don't know, I, I can't do I can't do a Trump. Maybe there's a reason for that. That's okay. Well, so anyways, we noticed that sign of shutdown the first time. He didn't go anywhere near um, alerting us to sensory overload today. At no point in time was he sensory overloaded. Right. 
I guess that was completely pointless. That didn't add anything to the conversation. Correct. I agree. <laughs> you sound like one of the knights. Oh, <coughs> sorry. One second. <sighs> Better. <laughs> well, it's a really tough thing sometimes, you know. When you want to have a normal experience and go out and really celebrate an event like Mother's Day or Father's Day, like we we have a two and a half year old, so you're kind of thinking, okay, maybe we can brave, you know, some regular everyday activities. And but because we know that there is neurodiversity, we have to be aware of, and all the environments we're going into aren't necessarily, you know, sensitive to the things that we need to be sensitive to, we're kind of having to reevaluate every single decision that we make and make sure that we have the capacity to go, that we're not going to, you know, overwhelm each other by going or, or really just set ourselves up for failure because we, we put ourselves in an environment that it's just too much. So it's, it's a really important consideration when you're planning things. Well, were there any environments that you and I attempted before we knew uh, your diagnosis where in the middle of the moment you were just like, I can't be here. This is this is really uncomfortable and I don't know why I'm trying to enjoy the moment and I can't and I'm really agitated. I mean, yeah, there have been plenty of times where that happens because I, I have a hard time sometimes living in the present and so I'll just be miserable. I mean, I think that's fair. You did really well in Italy when we went on that vacation, but... You know, little things like the boat rides I would throw you off. And I don't know whether it was the motion of being on the water or whether it was that they didn't go very fast. And, you know, you're worried about um, the time sensitivities of our schedule. I mean, there was a lot of different components that I could see now that we have a diagnosis makes sense looking back. But all I knew is that you were easily agitated and I didn't know how to fix it. So, I mean, there's a lot of... Um, empowerment that comes now that we know sort of the formula that we need to apply to external activities you know before we go to the aquarium we need to make sure we've taken account for this 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 and that and before we would just kind of go okay let's be like normal people and let's let's go out and have a good time and we would find ourselves in stressful situation after chaos after fight after just felt like drama all the time and I, I don't think we experience that so much now we do not live together. <laughs> okay, well, that's fair. So, but so a lot of other things have changed. You know, maybe there's less stress leading up to the moment where we're leaving. So right, because I just stroll over here. So, what would you say is the biggest difference in your experience from when we used to go out into public events that were loud and unpredictable with a lot of people? Versus now, when we tackle those same activities. The difference is that I don't think about it as much, I guess, now. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. I don't really think about it as much because I just kind of resign myself to the fact that we're doing whatever we're doing. And then I'm able to kind of enjoy things a bit more, I think. Okay. Well, tell me a little bit more because, you know, um, I know we've talked a bit about autism. We've talked about ADHD, but you also have anxiety. Thank you. I do. And I, you know, I have friends with anxiety and I have never really experienced that. I had postpartum anxiety. So that was my first real experience with that feeling of not being able to control, you know, what happens next and just kind of living in that present fear. So if that's, is that what you experience too when your anxiety is kind of kicking up? The, the presence of fear? 
I I was scared all the time. Like after coming home with the baby, that postpartum anxiety I had, and that's again my only experience with it. I was just scared all the time. Remember, I had you install that light in the backyard because. I was constantly afraid of someone like breaking into the house or I couldn't get to sleep at night. My mind was just replaying every cop show I ever watched <laughs> like it was going to happen to me. And Yeah, I wasn't like a paranoid lunatic like you were. Oh, well. <laughs> what was your anxiety like? Well, I mean, my, I've, I've had ang- I have anxiety. It, it, there's a difference between general anxiety and then like having a panic attack. Okay, that's fair. Well, tell me more about both. I don't really because understand. Anxiety them. is is that you're, well, I I don't know how to explain it. It's like you're constantly on edge, and um, can you can basically have like an overwhelming sense of looming dread, like something terrible is going to happen. Um, so that's why like when Declan's running like he was today after we were leaving medieval times um, and there's like cars on the street, even though I, you know, realistically I'm like, hey, he's not going to like run in the street, but that's what I, in my mind's eye, I see him like running and getting, you know, hit by a car. Mm, and so it, it's like, that's what I see. And so that's my reality in that moment. And that's, you know, what amps up my anxiety as opposed, opposed to a panic attack, which is like all the anxiety is hitting you at once and like for me it, it almost makes things feel unrealistic to where um i start to have this like looping thing where like everything that's happening feels predetermined and predestined and feels like very uh oh that's why you don't like deja false. vu that's why i don't like deja vu oh i get it because it makes it feel like everything that's happening is is like out of your control okay but you're so it's like it feels like you're thinking about everything that's going to happen and then that thing happened like mundane things like you're like i'm gonna get go sit down now and then you go to sit down you're like i just sat down you know and then Mm. like i better stand up and then you stand up and you're like i just stood up it's like weird um i don't know how to explain it other than to say it's weird and to have kind of like a reality echo well that's why i say it's like it's like a looping thing like where it feels like everything that's happening is just and 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 it that's just how I experience sure anxiety attacks. I don't know how other people experience them. Um, some people I think they're you know, and then your heart is racing. My my understanding of the biological response to anxiety is that it triggers fight or flight, um, which is your sympathetic nervous system. You know, your that it's like a light switch. You're either in rest and digest, which is the parasympathetic part of your nervous system, or you're in fight or flight. And it's it's actually more complicated than that. It, it's fight, flight, flee, uh, or freeze. And so you can kind of go into all those different stages of w- how you would respond to a predator. You forgot sit and shit. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think that was one of them, and actually. What about pee and flee? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, but actually I was uh, I was reading a book on executive function and I did not realize it, there's actually another one. It's fight, flight, flee, fart, <laughs> freeze, oh. and, and fornicate is actually one of them also. I did fight, not- flight, fart, fornicate, and what? <laughs> flee. Okay. Oh, freeze. I don't know. Now you got me confused. But Sorry. I didn't realize that, that sexual activity was one of the nervous system's way of handling... 
the energy response. Haven't you ever seen a nervous man on the street just masturbating? <laughs> no, but it, I was thinking of all the, you know, dark ages times I'm where... trying to fornicate, but no one will help. <laughs> no. Anxiety seems to trigger a fight or flight response. Yeah. Yes. So the shortness of breath, the ha- faster heart rate, the dilated pupils. The fornicating. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think if we did more of that, there'd be less anxiety in general, but that's just my opinion. Okay. There'd be a lot less murders in the world if people (laughs) were fornicating more often. Yes. That's for sure. Who knew? But it's actually equally a part of the rest and digest phase of the nervous system. Fornicating is the only one that's in both. It's all all factual, but it's awkward. I'm feeling socially awkward now. So one of the ways to help treat anxiety is medication. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So have you? I feel tried? like. Why do I feel like I'm sitting on the stand? Well, because I'm one of the reasons. Well, then you you tell me. No, go ahead and start ask you, start your line of questioning again. What do you do for anxiety? I do drugs. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. What do you do for your anxiety? So I take mood stabilizers. There you go. That sounds right. And they stabilize my mood. And that's for anxiety. I hope so. Okay. I didn't realize the mood stabilizers was for anxiety. Yeah, of course. I didn't make that connection. Okay. Well, what else would the what else would be controlling the anxiety? That's it is. I mean, if you're in a really good mood, chances are you're not going to be really anxious. I mean, I that's fair. I think the way I was imagining it was because there's a lot of emotional and mood regulation dysfunction that comes with, you know, ADHD and autism, and so I I kind of just thought it resided over there in that bucket. I didn't realize it was more of the anxiety. But that, I mean, it explains neurodiversity is an umbrella term that includes everything because there's so much, you know, crisscross between the the categories. You know, it's, it's sometimes it's really difficult to tease them all apart. Okay, so adding everything up from sensory processing disorder, how that applied to our day-to-day with, you know, a sensory-seeking toddler, and he's a toddler, so there's, you know, that little area of just being two on top of everything else that we're, we're talking about today. Um, when we are approaching something as fun and celebratory as Father's Day, and you're looking for some activity to do, once you've kind of done all the math and found a place that you can go, it's unfortunate that there are still so many considerations you and I have to make to make sure that we have a really great time because you don't look autistic. You don't sound autistic. Let me stop you for a second, Rochelle. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. You do? I do. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what you're talking about? <laughs> Not a clue. <laughs> oh, man. I feel like um, I think we're both tired. Yeah. And... uh I'm going to have to go back and heavily edit this thing <laughs> to make any sense of it. Yeah. I think one of the things I'm curious to ask you about is how you feel about um, sleep as part of your regular... Love it. Do you <laughs> so I've been doing a lot of research lately. And one of the things that I keep coming across is how consistent... Uh, sleep issues are in the neurodiverse population. Now, at, at this point in time, I, I think there's sleep issues across the board. But to clarify my point, sleep issues seem to show up in as early as infancy. In infancy? Yeah. In newborns. 
and persist all the way through life. And I, I didn't know that. Now I can look back and say, our son has never been a good sleeper. This is true. I mean, we, we managed to have two nights to ourselves. Like when we were in the hospital, we didn't know those were going to be the best nights for a while. But he, after that, once we got him home, he's never been a, a really great sleeper. And I, I'm talking to a lot of parents these days. And as we can kind of compare notes and we're working through identifying, you know, and, the, and bringing to light the meaningful observations that we've made as parents, sleep just keeps coming to the top as being a, a high concern. Is there going to be a question in there? Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> you said you had a question I for do. me. Sorry. <laughs> My um, I do have a question. So before your diagnosis, how would you describe your sleep? Um, it was uh, pretty bad. I mean, I thought we I think we talked about this last time or in the first episode. We talked about my sleeping habits. A little bit, but let's um, go a little bit more into it because it's a pretty broad topic and I think we only touched the surface. Okay. All right. Let's let's get below the surface. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, yes, before we talked about how easily you could fall asleep to friends or something like that. You mentioned friends. I was trying to keep that to myself. Sorry. I was, um, I was really proud of being able to fall asleep to a laugh track. Like, yeah. you know. I enjoyed that part, but no, I know for the, I mean, and I, I did talk about this. I talked about how, uh, I, since I was a little kid would, you know, fall asleep watching movies and then it turned into friends. And then now I don't, I don't need that stimulation to help me fall asleep anymore. Now I'm able to, I mean, typically I mean, it's not like I can't sleep. It's not like I can sleep anywhere, but it needs to be really quiet and it needs to be dark. I have to have like a blindfold on or something. On um, top of the dark curtains, the blackout curtains? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, and well, because I, because was light seeps in. Well, is there also, I'm just curious, you know, as I visualize you going into that really dark room with the blackout curtains and then still putting the blindfold on at night. I'm also wondering if it's almost become comforting to have the pressure over your eyes, like from the blindfold, if that's, I mean, that's fair to say, I guess I'd, I think it's just part of my routine at this point. So I don't really think about it. Okay. Well, I mean, that's fair. Routines are really key. I, I understand the structure of a routine and the confidence that comes with knowing that, you know, you can go from step one, two, three, four, um, that you're in control of it, that that becomes really uh, strategy for self-soothing also, which you need in order to down-regulate and move into quality sleep. Okay. Is that fair? I think so. Does, does that kind of match your experience? I mean, it, yeah. I mean, because what I'm remembering is the nights where it just didn't seem like you could run out of energy. And, and, you, and I'd find you, you know, kind of... Now I have no energy. <laughs> slightly different issue, but... You know, I mean, I, it could be 10 o'clock at night and, and I'd hear you in the kitchen and I could hear the cabinet doors open and closing and I could hear the oven open and closing and, um, you know, then I'd hear the TV on. And I was baking. You're baking? Yeah. <laughs> baking quiches for the morning so we had breakfast? I was baking, I was making quiche. There you go. Well, but my point is that you were still very active late into the evening just a short time ago. You know, and it seemed like it took a lot of effort for you to fall asleep. And, and most of the times you'd fall asleep in front of the TV because 
it was the only place that you could kind of finally get your body and your mind to a, a point of rest in order to downregulate enough to fall asleep. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I I did I did have that, but I don't anymore. Well, what do you contribute the big difference to? I mean, being able to take control of your Probably, sleep is huge. Probably, I would say something that I'm taking is helping. You're taking like one of your medications taking? Yeah, probably. Okay. I mean, that's the only thing that makes sense to me. I mean, that's probably the mood stabilizing medications. Oh, okay. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have understood that before. So Well, cuz I'm not so anxious at night. So I'm not sitting there thinking about all the things that make me anxious. Oh, interesting. I wouldn't Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I just well, hearing you sound you s- like you sound like you're a doctor <laughs> Phil or something. No, it's just I'm hearing you say that and in my mind I'm I'm suddenly just connecting a whole bunch of dots that have been just fragmented little lights that I didn't know, you know, how they fit together and so as you're saying that I'm thinking, "Oh, now this makes sense and this makes sense and that makes sense." So I I guess I just didn't understand that it was anxiety that was keeping you up at night. Yeah. I mean that and and just n- not being not particularly being very t- I don't know like I didn't my body didn't feel tired okay so I'd just be wired up well one of the other things that's changed is that your ADHD medications changed right yes I take different medications for ADHD now okay so when you were taking that medication before um, was it considered of your autism well, I mean, my understanding is that it wasn't, and that was one of the conflicting issues that I was having because with the medications, and that I was misdiagnosed and or underdiagnosed and taking the wrong medications for for what my diagnosis would be. Because if you just have ADHD versus having ADHD coupled with autism, um, the medication that you take can very much affect your nervous system in a completely different way. Yeah, I wish more people understood that little detail. It's a tiny detail, but it's huge. I mean, just thinking right now and listening to you speak, I'm connecting the dot of how that impacted your sleep, um, probably ramped up your anxiety. I mean, you said that you had um, energy that you just kind of never, you were never tired. Um, It makes sense now, all the things I would hear, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock at night, the TV, the the kitchen and kind of bustling around and and doing a lot of things like you just couldn't quite complete the day. It's like you, I just never really felt like you could end your day on purpose, you know, like I'll go in and lay down and then I can go right to sleep. But it seemed like it was really difficult for you to do that. And I mean, we didn't know you had autism at the time, so how would we know you were on the wrong medication? Like, how would someone know? What did you experience that made you feel like something's just not right? I I don't know how to quantify it in a way that would make sense to explain. Try. I don't know. I, I really don't know. I... I knew, I mean, I don't know. I just never felt like I wanted to take medication in the first place. So when I finally did start taking medication, I was told that I was going to have this aha moment and all this. And I still, to this day, have never had that aha moment. 
Um, That's right. They did talk about that. Like all of a sudden the world was just going to fall into Zen for you. Well, like I was told that it was like putting on a pair of glasses, like everything would feel clearer and it's never really felt like that. So I've never really had the aha moment with the ADHD medication, but what I did have were a lot of, uh, oh shit moments. (laughs) That's fair. I mean, boundaries are one of those things. If you're not actively putting them in place, uh, you'll notice it once you've run right past it. So I think that's fair. Yeah. So I would just get super amped up and which is funny because that's not what, you know, ADHD medication, if you have ADHD should do the opposite of that. It should calm you down and it wasn't doing that. And the doctor that ended up switching my medication out, she was like, well, you're, you, you have multiple diagnoses now. So that, you know, she had a leg up on the other doctors. So what I'm hearing you say is that when you were being treated by a doctor who was just kind of a general practitioner for psychiatry versus someone that had specialty training, the level of expertise to be able to tease apart and properly medicate you was vastly different. Absolutely. Okay. So um, as I'm hearing you say that, it kind of makes me think that it's really important if you think you have neurodiversity of any kind to almost just go straight to someone who specializes in multiple of the conditions, you know, ADHD, autism, anxiety, depression, um, because then you'll get likely a more well-rounded experience versus what we did, uh, which started out in general and kind of... Yeah, but I mean, how do you know until you spend all the money and the time to go through that process. And that's, you know, for, for most people, it's probably not an easy decision. I mean, it wasn't easy. It wasn't an easy decision on our end either, but it also, because it took so long to get to that point, it was just kind of a fuck it. Let's just do this and get some answers. Well, one of the things I heard you say just now that was really interesting. um, And I think a point to highlight is that you were given us a, expectation of how the medication would make you feel and I I mean I remember the first time you started just on the sample pills you know of um, one of the ADHD medications and and you were so nervous about how you were going to feel it almost amplified the impact of what you did feel and there were multiple times where you're just like okay I'm just so terrified you know of feeling something that I don't like that um, it was difficult to understand what the medication was actually making you feel and what your emotions were making you feel. That is absolutely true. So I guess, <laughs> I guess one of the things that um, comes to mind arises to the surface of this conversation is the parts that each of the diagnoses play in the overall picture that you are completely unaware of at the moment. So there's anxiety, right? Because there was anxiety about taking the medication that uh, was undiagnosed and untreated. And it was for ADHD, which was diagnosed and beginning to be treated. And then there was undiagnosed, unknown autism and how they all blended together. So what you said was I never received the feeling. I never got that feeling that they kind of told me to expect. Right. Like I said, they, I was told that it would be a, an aha moment and I never had that. So what did, when, when the first medication didn't give you that aha moment, what did you do next? I can't remember. Did we just try to, I was, no, I was told because that's not how it's like, you got to keep taking that pill for like two weeks. 
and titrating up because the and the thing is that they were starting on on me on such a low dose that it could have easily been that it was the wrong medication from the start but it could have been sorry he's i know the baby is stirring so you were talking about the titration process of starting a new ADHD medication and how we were told in advance you might not feel kind of right until you get to the sweet spot, which is like the right amount of that medication. So you still could feel off for the right. first couple of weeks. Right. And I never really got to that sweet spot. Like I said, I mean, I feel like with the medication I'm on now, it's a good, whatever the amount is, it's a good amount. <laughs> But it's, um, and that's because I don't feel negative side effects or anything. Whereas before I titrated up to a point where they were like, we're putting you on a lot of this particular medication, just so you know. And now we're putting you on even more. And it just kept going up and up and up. And no one thought to think, uh, hello, maybe we should be looking at something else or maybe there's something wrong here. You know, just to give credit where credit is due, the one person who did make that link was your mom, who said, you know, she was starting to track the behavioral Dr. changes. Dr. Mom. Yeah. The behavioral issues is, is not something that I, I was a little too close to the to the, the trees at this point to see the forest. And so I, I did notice a decline in behavior. I did notice an increase in um, frustration. It's like your frustration tolerance got lower, which is a fancy way of saying like, you could be easily set off by the smallest little thing, which is difficult when you have a, a newborn infant around. But that's also not necessarily just because you were, you know, grumpy. It's because you were potentially on the wrong medication. And then, like you said, even more of the wrong medication. So what would your advice be to someone who's just starting the process of, being introduced to ADHD medication, um, and and let's just play devil's advocate and say that they do have autism, and it's diagnosed from the beginning, and they don't have the same experience you did. Okay, what's my advice? Yeah, what would you be your advice to someone starting this process? Just make. I mean, I would just make sure that I have a doctor that you trust and that seems like they know what they're doing, and if you are titrating up on medications to notate any weird feelings that you have. Um, if you feel uncomfortable taking something, you know, you're not supposed to just stop. So make sure that you, you know, speak to your pharmacist, uh, speak to your, your general practitioner, your psychiatrist or whoever's uh, prescribing the medication for you. You know, just hearing you say that, it brings to mind one thing I wish we had known before we started the process. When we started with the first doctor who was really kind of taking control of um, trying to give you medication for anxiety and ADHD at the same time, his office wasn't necessarily accessible. It's not like you were given what I would consider strong access to the doctor. So reporting these changes was like... You had one shot every six weeks. Right. So comparing that to the doctor that we ultimately found um, who does have training and very, very vocal on her website about, you know, multiple diagnoses within, it, I called it dual diagnosis, but really it's, you know, 
more than that. Isn't diagnoses the word, not diagnoses? <laughs> you know what? You're right. Diagnoses is. sounds like a dinosaur. It's true. You're right. It's diagnoses. That's the um, diagnosis. One of the things that you could tell just made her a superior practitioner and that she understood her population and how important it is to make changes to the medications as soon as you know they're not working. Uh, it was evident in the fact that she handed us a direct line and said, reach out constantly. And that would be something to look for in a provider, someone who understands, you know, that you may need to provide feedback more than every six weeks. I think the reason it ends up being six weeks is based on the laws because some of these medications are considered, you know, Oh, schedule, um, schedule one narcotics or whatever. So they have to, you have to be like, what? Like I'm going to stop being autistic (laughs) right or stop having adhd um that's another thing that really irritates me is that people think there's like they they can fix you it's like you can help me but you can't just like i can't make you have autism or make you have adhd uh something you're born with Uh oh i lost my i lost my co-chair i'm all on my own now I have I can say whatever I want. Rochelle can't stop me. She's not here. I've been unleashed. Oh no. I have nothing to say. That sucks. Um this happened last episode. I got ditched. So we had to pause the podcast because Declan woke up from his nap and started throwing a fit. So now Rochelle is in the other room trying to console him. So these are the realities of having a child. Wear a condom, kids. No. Um, <laughs> I love my son. It's Father's Day. This may be the end for for now. I'm Blake. And I'm Rochelle. And this is You Don't Sound Autistic. Cue the music. Bow, 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 bow.